Ignorance is not bliss. It is oblivion. Philip Wiley. This podcast is about things we may not know or understand, but things that may well kill some or all of us. In each case, a better understanding of the risks may improve our chances of being among the survivors. Any opinions expressed here are mine. I bring these issues to your attention in the hope that you'll be motivated to further your understanding through personal research and through open discussion among your peers. Death by ignorance does not contain profanity. It does, however, present content that may be disturbing to some listeners. The material is intended for a mature audience and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Death by Ignorance, Episode 3, After the Collapse. Money is a myth, a shared story upon which we have constructed highly complex societies. It is a collective delusion that is fundamental to local, regional, national and international trade. The myth of money is the glue that holds our world together and it is the beast that will tear our planet apart. Money is not real unless we all agree to believe that it is. Take a bill from your wallet or purse. If you're in the US, that piece of paper is actually a sheet of fabric, a blend of cotton and linen, printed with green, black, and a special metallic ink. The value of that piece of intricately designed fabric varies continuously and it reflects the fluctuating strength of the U.S. economy. 75 years ago, the dollar was recognized as the currency of the planet and remains in high demand as the global currency today. So you could certainly be forgiven for believing that the scrap of cloth you're holding has real and intrinsic value. But it doesn't. The piece of currency you are holding is an IOU. It's a token of credit, a promise. One that could evaporate in a fraction of a second. It's happened before, and it will almost certainly happen again. For currency to have value, both sides of the transaction have to believe in the same story. And that goes for individuals just as it does for superpowers. When one side or the other begins to doubt the truth of the story, questions the actual strength of the economy that vouches for the value of your dollar, the illusion of rock-solid stability can, and will, vanish like the mirage it always was. Under what conditions, then, does the story of money begin to sound like a pack of lies? Under what conditions can a currency as powerful as the US dollar fail? To answer that, we need only look at our own history and that of some of our closest neighbors. Let's begin with the Great Depression of the 1930s. 
While not actually devolving into a complete economic collapse, it was a severe jolt to a system that didn't see it coming and to the lives of millions of unprepared citizens. The nightmare began with the stock market crash of 1929. Investors losing faith in the real value of the businesses that their invested funds were capitalizing became nervous, believing, in many instances correctly, that the existing prices were unsustainably high and they began selling their holdings. This is a normal occurrence known as a correction that is triggered when a company's earnings fall short of the share price. But if the fear selling of stocks is not checked, or if investors are afraid to repurchase the shares at the new lower price, companies begin to fail, which in turn creates more fear and more selling. It was a stock market crash that triggered the depression to follow. Stocks continued to fall precipitously until 1932, and by 1933, banks were shuttering their doors. As businesses closed their factories, men and women found themselves out of work, with 25% of the population unemployed. Assets had lost most or all of their value, and the remaining banks had stopped lending. The per capita gross domestic product had dropped by one-third. During the near collapse of the Great Depression, the gold standard was replaced by a fiat currency, or currency with a floating value determined by the economic strength of the issuing government, and private ownership of monetary gold became illegal. As appalling as the Great Depression was for those who suffered through it, the dollar did not collapse. We've experienced many potentially devastating economic crises since surviving the Great Depression, but none came closer to collapsing the US economy than the events that unfolded a few short years ago in 2008. The financial crisis of 2008 was triggered by a different set of events, though as in 1929, the insatiable greed and hubris of banks created the necessary conditions for the catastrophe that followed. For years, banks had been lending money to home buyers not qualified to take on the debt, and then gambling with their customers' money on the unrealistic expectation that housing prices would continue to climb ad infinitum. The loans predictably began to fail as unqualified borrowers were unable to make payments on the homes that they could not afford in the first place. Seeing an opportunity to milk even more money from the crisis that they had created, banks invented new types of transactions, bundling good debt with bad and selling these ticking time bonds to other financial institutions at a profit. As the bad debt began to fail and home foreclosures skyrocketed, investors began pulling their money from banks as fast as they could. The panic spread like wildfire and the lenders, along with the companies that insured their risk, began to collapse as the withdrawals accelerated. Ultimately, the US government was left with no choice but to bail out the banks and insurance companies, the very organizations whose leaders had been busily building private empires from the spoils of their plunder, 
lest the country and the world slip into economic freefall. Another close call, yes, but once again, despite the shameless malfeasance of our bankers and insurance peddlers, an economic collapse was narrowly averted. So what has changed since 2008? Well, not very much. One Wall Street executive, one, went to jail. The big banks are still the same big banks, and they're still conducting business much as they did prior to 2008. Stock prices are climbing, and Wall Street salaries have rebounded to pre-2008 levels. Well, of course they have. Household incomes, on the other hand, are virtually unchanged from 2008. And while employment numbers have improved, 20% of employed Americans today are surviving on incomes that place them below the poverty line. Inequality is worse than it has ever been, maybe because the government bailout after 2008 put money back in the pockets of stockholders and ignored the underemployed and unemployed who lacked the resources to invest. The crisis bled between six and 14 trillion dollars from the US economy, and has promised to pay almost $13 trillion more into the coffers of banks and insurance companies. For their part, the six largest banks have paid a measly pittance of $110 billion, roughly one half of 1% of the damage they caused. What else? Oh yes, the Federal Reserve has increased the number of inspectors by one-third. Well, I'm sure that will help. And some new banking regulations have been added. What is less well understood is that the regulators enforcing the new, tougher regulations are, well, bankers. Fine, upstanding citizens like Steve Mnuchin, Gary Cohn, Dina Powell, and Randy Qualls. What could possibly go wrong? It's fair to say that nothing much has changed. Business as usual for the too big to fail banks. In the interest of fairness, I concede the fact that the US does enjoy a strong economy, the third largest on the planet. And the government does have safeguards in place against a possible collapse in the future. Safeguards that, at least in theory, could be deployed to prevent or forestall an impending collapse. The Federal Reserve has what are known as contractionary monetary tools that could be used to tame hyperinflation, the uncontrolled rapid increase in the cost of goods and services. The banks are insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and we have emergency oil stockpiles, the strategic oil reserves, which could help us weather an oil embargo, certainly. We have a lot of military might, Surely that will help somehow. But there are many plausible scenarios in which the government's emergency resources would fall far short of adequate. I also believe that it is a massive stretch to trust that the government, a government that seems incapable of anything more constructive than endless partisan bickering, 
will suddenly metamorphose into a highly functional, well-oiled machine in the time of crisis. We should remember also that our government, independent of the party in power, still serves at the pleasure of, and largely under the control of, its wealthy corporate benefactors. No, I think for the purposes of this discussion, we'd be better off to predict that our government will remain terminally dysfunctional and hopelessly corrupt, even in the face of a full-blown national catastrophe. I would suggest to you that we are more vulnerable to economic collapse now than at any time in the past century. We are individually and collectively overextended, drowning in debt as individuals and as a nation. We're spending next month's wages on food, while our bankers, motivated by insatiable greed, continue to recklessly speculate with our deposits. We are lulled into a false sense of security by strong economic indicators, low jobless rates and ever-rising stock prices that together promise a future of uninterrupted wealth and prosperity. We've surrounded ourselves with the trappings of wealth, but done so by going deeper and deeper into debt, while all the while remaining happily ignorant of the fact that economic growth is finite. With consumer debt, student loan debt, real estate debt, and debt of a hundred other varieties looming over us, we're rapidly closing on the absolute limits of economic growth. We're living in a bubble, a bubble caused by unsustainable expansion that will, that must eventually burst. We have all bought into the delusion that the dollar in our hand is a real thing, that it has an intrinsic value today, and that it will have the same or more value tomorrow. That no matter what misfortune may be delivered on our town, our state, our country, or our planet, this dollar will still be worth a dollar. Our inability to grasp the inevitability of a near-future economic collapse is one of the most important risk factors for such a collapse. But even more concerning is the high likelihood of a total breakdown of society in the wake of a collapsed economy. Social collapse as a direct result of economic collapse seems certain especially in light of the prevalent conditions in our internet-dependent society. We all live in our own algorithmically determined echo chambers. We are fed an endless stream of information that has been carefully curated to confirm our biases and affirm our tribal loyalties. Whether the information we are fed is part of a corporate marketing campaign or the attempt by a foreign power to polarize our worldview, the result is the same. Our minds are being systematically manipulated by entities that are seeking to destabilize our society in order to consolidate power, extend empire, or create wealth. We're being manipulated into seeing our neighbors as enemies 
stockpiling military-grade weapons for our protection, becoming radicalized in our beliefs and organizing against shadowy threats, most of which don't exist. The very technology that we have embraced as the key to personal freedom and a better life has been hijacked and repurposed as an unimaginably powerful and highly effective tool for brainwashing and controlling the minds of the population. From the deodorant we choose to the leaders we elect, from the lies we believe to the people we have learned to hate, we are being manipulated constantly. And we're being played so masterfully that the majority of us have no awareness of it. We've been conditioned to trust authority absolutely and to believe the information we've been fed unquestioningly. We seem to have lost the capacity for healthy skepticism and worse, we're teaching our children from the crib that doubt is evil. To summarize the threat, we're living in a country with an overextended and unsustainable economy. An economy the strength of which guarantees the value of the global currency. We're depleting resources and irreparably destroying our environment with shameless abandon. We're part of a society that is absolutely unprepared to survive an economic implosion and one that bounds ever closer to the precipice of a widespread civil unraveling with every passing day. We're sitting on a powder keg and striking matches. We're oblivious to the danger. We are primed for a cataclysm that will lay waste to everything we hold dear, and we don't know what's coming. Before we discuss how a national or global financial collapse will affect our everyday lives, or consider what will likely become of us and our precious dollars in its immediate aftermath, I want to touch briefly on the types of event capable of triggering such a calamity. Surely, you may be thinking, understanding the triggering event must be the most important factor to be considered when setting policy and making preparations. I would argue that an understanding of the triggering event in any catastrophe will do very little to shed light on the crisis itself. What we must actually focus on are the conditions under which the catastrophe becomes possible and upon the measures we should be taking now in order to prevent those conditions from arising in the future. We must be more interested in understanding the failure of Chicago's fire prevention policies in 1871 than with the color of Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Nevertheless, I'll mention a few examples of possible triggering events, but with the one caveat that many such events prove to be neither predictable or preventable. Firstly, a sudden devaluation of the dollar. This could occur for any number of reasons, both domestic and foreign, real or imagined. If the global economy decides for any reason at all that the dollar is overpriced on the world market, then the myth of the dollar will begin to change. Our credit would immediately weaken and our debts would become due. 
hyperinflation would surely follow. For an example of how such an event could unfold, just look at Venezuela today. Secondly, a run on domestic banks. Your savings are not sitting in a hardened vault, buried deep in the bedrock underneath your local Wells Fargo, for example. Your money is out there in the world working hard, for your bank that is, but you don't know any of this when you hear about the arrest of your bank's president for doing whatever it is bank presidents do and decide you need to withdraw your hard-earned savings before the other shoe drops. The teller may be able to cash out your account and possibly those of the next few of your neighbors in line behind you. But eventually, with enough people demanding their money, the bank will eventually have to stop honoring those withdrawal slips. The bank's investors will panic and the bank's stock price will plummet. Without capital, the bank will cease lending and without income, it'll become unable to pay its debts. Without another multi-trillion dollar payoff from us, the taxpayers, the bank will fail. And the same fears that pushed you to retrieve your savings will spread like smallpox and soon other banks will fail, just like Domino's or like Argentina in 1999. Third, a terrorist attack destroys several oil refineries on the same afternoon. Within hours, hoarding and stockpiling cause petrol and diesel fuel to become unavailable anywhere. The first few citizens to leap into action bought every drop of gas they could carry, then went back twice to do the same before others on their street noticed and had the same thought. Before sunset on the day of the attack, there was no fuel left. The next day, local and interstate commerce ground to a halt. By day two, the grocery store shelves were empty, except for a few remaining jars of Marmite. Four, a massive cyber attack takes out our nation's internet, telephony, and cell services. Five, a natural disaster of incalculable magnitude levels San Francisco and renders the land between Eureka and Salinas uninhabitable. Six, a quant trader makes a coding error while developing a high-frequency trading algorithm. The error is not caught, and on deployment, the program causes a massive sell-off of shares, igniting a panic on the global market. The event or events that ultimately trigger a collapse may be huge or they may be trivial. They may be predictable or come without warning. Triggering events may be sudden or they may develop gradually, at least early on, gathering momentum over days, months or even years. Climate change is an example of an event that is absolutely certain to trigger a global economic and societal collapse due to the destruction of farmable lands, the inundation of coastal habitats, and the forced relocation of millions of starving and desperate people. What really matters is that if conditions for collapse are present, 
when the event unfolds, whatever that trigger may be, nothing will be able to avert the ensuing storm. So what does this mean to you? What impact could a collapsed economy have on you and your family? And how can you become prepared? Consider the following scenario. In a period of less than a week, the country is rocked by the assassination of more than 40 politicians, corporate leaders, and key government employees. The attacks are part of a coordinated offensive planned and executed by a network of well-funded domestic terrorists. Many of the assassins were apprehended or killed during the attacks, and the network was rapidly disassembled and its leaders and most of its operatives detained in federal facilities around the country. During the first few days, the country's banks faced an unprecedented run from frightened depositors. As the crisis unfolded, many banks were forced to close their doors and turn away depositors. As banks began to fail, the stock market, already reeling under the pressure of massive sell-offs, suspended all trading after indicators surpassed all previous record lows. Interest rates surged off the charts. Foreign investors began to sell dollars as the currency lost value at an alarming rate. Countries with stockpiles of US dollars scrambled to divest their holdings in favor of euros and yuan. Virtually all interstate commerce ground to a halt as supplies of fuel were exhausted. A delay in releasing the strategic oil reserves further impeded commerce, while food awaiting distribution began to rot in warehouses around the country. Supermarket shelves began to empty as desperate families stockpiled whatever they could afford or whatever they could steal. Hyperinflation swept across the country with prices for food and clothing and other essentials doubling and doubling again over a period of only four days. Within two weeks' time, paper currency became virtually worthless. Some of our most prized treasures may have held some value for a little longer, but before long, treasures that we had toiled for decades to possess couldn't buy a loaf of moldy bread. Widespread looting swept the country as overwhelmed law enforcement personnel turned to protecting their loved ones and police agencies exhausted their remaining fuel reserves. All available military assets were deployed and all armed forces reserve and National Guard units were placed on active duty. Units were initially deployed to transport food and water, but their orders were soon amended as units were redeployed with orders to restore order and enforce martial law as widespread looting and violence took over the country. As workers lacked transport and prioritized protecting their homes and families from looting and violence, the operation of all remaining services and utilities began to fail. As the supply of electrical power became irregular and unreliable, communications were disrupted, 
The internet was an early casualty as communities large and small became disconnected from the outside world within just days. The last surviving section of the national electrical grid went offline after six days. Over the ensuing weeks, stockpiled fuel ran out and generators fell silent. Gradually, the last batteries were depleted and before long, the country faded to black. Water pressure fell gradually as households across the country scrambled to fill every available container. Within two weeks, most of the country lacked running water completely. And as personal stockpiles shrank, a new level of panic took hold of the population. Drinking stream and pond water polluted and rich in parasitic microbes, entire communities fell ill with amoebic dysentery and a host of other diarrheal maladies. Medical systems were overwhelmed almost immediately, and they became an early target for desperate looters. The very young and the elderly infirm were the first to start dying either from severe dehydration or from infection. But with nowhere to refrigerate the mounting piles of corpses, hospitals quickly became foul charnel houses infested with carrion, gorging insects, rats, and even starving domestic pets. Ragtag groups of starving and thirsty bookkeepers, bakers and bartenders pooled their guns, their knives, their baseball bats to become roving gangs of bandits. Unaccustomed to wielding this kind of power, the bandits used the cover of mayhem to settle old scores. The cities fell first overpopulated by millions of men, women and children living in concrete, dependent on rural America for food and lacking both the space and the knowledge to grow their own. Those in areas more sparsely populated fared a little better, with small farming and foraging collectives emerging spontaneously as neighboring farms pooled their resources as they struggled to feed their families and livestock. The ultra-wealthy elites were well prepared for an event like this. They'd been stockpiling food, fuel, water, and weapons for decades, knowing that eventual collapse was inevitable just a matter of time. At the first rumblings of the unfolding cataclysm, the ultra-wealthy, the very architects of this grim scenario, withdrew to their hardened compounds while leaving their minions, the lawmakers, the politicians, and their employees that had served them so loyally for decades to fend for themselves. In the most desperate corners of the country, the strong resorted to cannibalism of the weak when there was no more food left to steal. The poor and the weak died by the hundreds and then by the thousands from starvation from disease and from violence. A great many resorted to suicide. The country, once a mighty bastion for freedom and opportunity, a blazing light in the darkness, was reduced to a shattered nightmare landscape 
the remains of which smoldered for months, pumping a greasy black miasma across her once fruited plains. Is this really what awaits us? Is this scenario even possible? Surely our neighbours will come to our aid, won't they? A collapse of the US economy will almost certainly lead to a collapse of every developed country on the planet. When the myth of the dollar is shattered, the myths attached to every other global currency will likewise unravel. In a very real sense, there will be no one out there to help us. They too will be fighting to survive, which may be the only thing that prevents the wholesale invasion and subjugation of the North American continent. This may not be how a US collapse unfolds, but it also may be. And if there is even a one-tenth of one percent chance that a collapse could unfold like this, should we not be talking about how it could be avoided? Do we have to witness the total immolation of everything we care about before we start asking questions about the road we're currently on? At what point will we be willing to meet halfway with our perceived enemies and just talk? What do we risk by a temporary suspension of our blind fears and hatreds? Can we not summon the courage to turn off the computer long enough to go and speak face to face with our neighbor? What will it take for us to become willing to reallocate even a sliver of the time and energy that we squander daily to stoke fear and spread hatred, to finding out the truth and learning the facts. Whether or not we face the imminent fall of the country as I've just described, isn't it worth trying something different just in case? I believe that it is. In fact, I believe it is the only chance we have to avert disaster. A disaster that beggars description. A disaster that could very possibly prove to be the final chapter in the book of our entire species. And understand this, there are no plausible scenarios in which we build paradise settlements on other worlds and escape a heat death here on Earth to start afresh in some paradise elsewhere. None. And even in the vanishingly unlikely event that some novel technology is developed that makes this plausible in the future, there is no one alive today and certainly no one listening to me now that will live to see it. We have no ace in the hole, no get out of jail free card. We have to grow up. We have to challenge the antiquated ideologies of our warring ancestors. We have to learn to work together to prove the instigators of all this insanity wrong. 
And I'm not talking to the leaders of this country, they don't listen, or to the plutocrats that control the leaders. I'm talking to you. We may well have already passed the point of no return, but if we haven't, the time to take action is now, today. So if you believe you possess the strength of character to stand up and fight for yourself, for your family, for your country, and yes, for your species, then turn this recording off now. Go find one of your sworn enemies. Offer them your hand. And tell them you want to talk.